0: This is Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. And today I'm joined by geochemist Patsy Moran. Patsy, how are you today?
1: Excellent. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm honored.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thanks. And uh, it's my honor, really. So we're uh, still in the pandemic, and hopefully, the pandemic isn't negatively affecting you and your life too much.
1: No, I'm fortunate. Uh, basically, business as usual. As an independent consultant, I pretty much work anywhere, and uh, at home is a, a obvious place to do it. And so, you know, now I just have a lot more people that understand
0: what I do. Yeah, that's great. That's good. Well, Patsy, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your education.
1: Sure. Uh, Let's start in Colorado. Might as well. In 2001, I moved to Colorado, and that's when I started graduate school at Colorado School of Mines. So I did my master's and Ph.D. in the applied, I guess, chemistry, geochemistry program. Uh, It's my degrees in applied chemistry. My um, work, I started on uranium, which was well-funded. Then the funding ran out and uh, went to Neptunium, which is definitely not really relevant to mining geochemistry, but in some way it is because it's just another aqueous metal or metalloid, you know, that it has those kind of properties. But anyhow, uh, did my PhD there and I was working with Jim Ranville and, um, He was very good friends with Ron Schmiermann. You remember Ron? Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so reached out to Ron, who said, you know, nope, not interested. You know, I'm not going to hire another junior geochemist that's going to get all my knowledge and then bail on me for 20% more at another consulting company, which, I mean, we've all dealt with. Right. So I I basically did that, um, but not before he went out and hid his own, hid, uh, uh, hung his own shingle and so that was my first taste of like wow these geochemists seem to go out and and do their own thing a lot you know Mm, rather than just doing kind of standard corporate consulting so he went out on his own i ended up getting recruited to another company more environmental geochemistry with the mining industry um then uh was recruited by a close friend of mine who we actually went to school together together jeff gillow um, working on more like remediation geochemistry, mining remediation geochemistry. And did that, I was with that company for about five years before I finally decided to to hang my own shingle as well. So that's, uh, I did that in 2018. I decided it made sense to to do it in Nevada. There wasn't a lot of, there really aren't, a lot of first of all independent environmental geochemists and secondly just environmental geochemists that are focused on nevada so it just seemed like an obvious place to be for me and um it's worked out really well and with the price of gold and copper at what they've been at i i seem to have i mean if this is a boom bust industry it certainly isn't right now it just seems to be all boom but i'll prepare for i'm preparing
0: for the bust if i have to so as a geochemist, are you at all insulated from the the bust cycles in mining?
1: I, I don't think I am anymore as an independent because I do a lot of um, upfront permitting, compliance work. Mm. Um, you know I, I really enjoy working directly for miners. and when things kind of contract, you know a lot of their environmental managers and techs have to do all the work that I would otherwise do. And when they expand, they open up those opportunities. But while I was at my previous company, we were completely insulated from the that cycle, which was really nice because you can't stop doing remediation just because the price of gold uranium copper whatever it might be is is down so so anyhow just that i've seen so i guess i started with the mining industry after my phd so that was that? 2007 and um i guess i I saw it for uranium so it was a hundred dollars when i started and it hasn't come back since and so that watching that happen and seeing that impact on the mi- folks that are in uranium mining consulting. So anyhow, I I married a firefighter paramedic that has since retired. And so he does have a pension, a pension we haven't pulled. And uh, so that's the plan. If, if I have to, we will.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're in Nevada, which is a great place for anybody in the mining industry, obviously. Uh, very diverse mineral resources there. Do you find yourself working almost exclusively in Nevada?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's hard for me to resist. Um other projects i have though because my goal is to not get too distracted by projects outside of nevada i worked on a project in utah recently which was a good example of um relationships where i met somebody gosh 10 years ago uh, had a nice conversation with them and they just couldn't find somebody who understood the particular you know pace backfill um Mm. geochemistry and um And so I just got lucky because of that relationship and I couldn't resist it. I, you know, I love cemented tailings backfill. So, um, and then another project came up, another one outside of Nevada recently that it's because of the, the geochemistry of it and my desire to really dig into that type of mine materials. So, but otherwise, yeah, almost exclusively Nevada.
0: Yeah. You mentioned cemented. Uh, Tailings backfill. And I I think we can talk about that another time. I think that would be a terrific topic. I really wanted to talk to you about pit lakes today. One of the reasons was a a friend of mine who's not in mining said, Brian, what do they do with those pits when they're done other than fill them back up with a waste rock? And I'm thinking, well, that almost never happens. Yeah. But there are beneficial. yeah (laughs) there are beneficial uses for pits and one of them is a pit lake um unfortunately a lot of people have an image of like the berkeley pit or Yerington uh superfund sites that are uh, you know a a black eye on the mining industry rather than some of the beneficial uses of pit lakes. so maybe you could just talk a little bit about pit lakes and what you've done, what you're accustomed to, and maybe even what went wrong with Berkeley or Earington, if you can.
1: Yeah, I think what's interesting is there is actually a podcast on Berkeley Pit. I don't know if you've seen that one, no, no, that, that one, one. but I, I think we need we need a podcast on some pits that have actually gone well where water quality met standards or the beneficial use was returned to something other than just you know storage of water so it's uh I get frustrated because a lot of what we know about pit lakes goes back 100 years and our approach to managing mine water was very different than our miners approach to managing mine water and so we have this history that kind of over is overwhelming compared to current examples and so we briefly talked about the one in in Australia Vista Gold's pit lake and I've done a little bit of kind of presentations wrote a paper about it but a really good example and I know it's not Nevada but I think it's a great example of a pit lake where There was a miner struggled, another miner struggled, and then ultimately they closed it and it went into care and maintenance in the Northern Territory. And it was filled with pH three-ish, three and a half water that um, was having to be treated, uh, you know, potentially in perpetuity, you know, so relatively small pit with a, a ton of water you know a meter of water per year that would occur over four or five months and so Vista Gold came in to that project I can't remember I worked on the project as a consultant and a corporate consultant and since as an independent consultant but they um, their goal is to mine that pit to actually have a closure plan that's involved so that you know there's more there's a plan associated with it. And that's, I think the key with modern mining is that it's not just let's go in, get the resource and leave. There's a huge amount of money that goes into bonding those projects. Now they can't walk away. There's it's, it's, and if they do walk away, there's enough money for regulators, I suppose, to come in and actually do it right. So, so that's what Vista Gold is doing. They treated the lake. The lake has since, um, Uh, I think the pH was seven, you know, circumneutral pH, low metals concentration, and they're almost done dewatering the pits so that they can actually go in and mine and then actually have a pit lake that is, um, appropriately managed. So I think that's a good example. Of course, you know, time will tell how that plays out. You know, hopefully they start mining in the
0: next few years. Yeah, I remember, uh, Quite a few years ago I, when I was with a previous company, we were looking at turning a pit lake into a recreational um, area with fishing and boating, but you have to be, you have to concern yourself with things like the high wall and yeah. and rockfall and things like that. So it's, it's not straightforward as to what you use it for other than uh, a nature area.
1: The nature area thing bugs me a bit. I apologize to folks. It's an appropriate, sorry, not to be controversial. There's an appropriate use of nature air, nature areas for mining and this history of mining. I think there's a lot of great stuff that's been done in Colorado. Um, you gave me an idea now, which is, uh, you know, the Henderson challenge that the School of Mine did with, did with their students I think it was might might have even been two years in a row where they looked at creative closure um, solutions. And one of the folks talked about using it as like a high altitude, um, cold weather uh car testing facility, you know, and they came up with some really good ideas. And I think maybe we need to ask them to come up with some really good ideas for pit lakes also and have a mining company that's willing to make that investment. I think that the winner got $25,000 for their work. Um, And because of the fact that that really is what is usually kind of the optimum scenario for a pit lake is boating fishing and I just wonder if we can come up with something a little bit more creative and I guess let me rephrase that we can come up with more creative solutions I am certain people are coming up with more creative solutions and we need people to know about them so maybe that's another podcast for you is uh we need to find someone who's actually working on those more creative solutions and admittedly it's not me
0: yeah (laughs) well you know i think in your neck of the woods there i think it's in sparks where there's a mined out gravel pit that's filled with water and there's a there's a housing community built up around it as if it's a natural lake and and so yeah there's no i mean that is a mining uh pit yeah but i mean it is
1: and they did a great job, and it, I was just there a few days ago when I was thinking about how, you know, they've done, a, I think it's called the marina now, and, and it and it, it had some real water quality issues that have since been resolved, at least based on my understanding, and and it's, it's in the middle of town, and yeah. so it's a great example of kind of that other side berkeley pit in the middle of town i think it's i want to say sparks marina but i might have the name of it wrong but still a, a great example that probably isn't highlighted enough and maybe because like you said is it really mining you know but most of our pits are in areas where you know maybe that's why nevada is such a great mining state is that a lot of these resources are not in the middle of town you know you're going into the middle of the Nevada desert and then there'll be small towns around the mines, but not sparks, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't wish, we should probably not uh, downplay the importance of pit lakes for migratory waterfowl because in a place like Nevada, it can be a long way between uh, watering holes for the waterfowl. So it does have a real benefit there. And I, you know, it becomes part of their uh, uh, migration pattern once once they see something like that. So, it, it is yeah. a nice benefit.
1: That's a great example of where we need to be cautious about what standards are applied to pit lakes because it really is about ecological risk. And you know, when we when we want to apply um, kind of drinking water standards to a pit lake, and that nobody's drinking that water, that not human health we have to think about animals and bugs and birds i'm sorry to the biolog biologists out there that i just (laughs) insulted with i didn't say bugs and bunnies so did i (laughs) so anyhow but there's there are in nevada there are very clear standards that were set up because these ecological risk assessments were so um broad as far as you know what people would come up with as far as what the risk was. And so they decided to develop something called a profile three, um, List and that list covers you know wide range of constituents and kind of a an upper limit of what your pit lake water quality can be and if it exceeds that pit what lake water quality you better be able to come up with a basis that says that you will not um, negatively influence that I, I don't know, population let's say and and if you do then what are you going to do to mitigate those effects and so that's where potentially treatment or some kind of remediation would come into play some kind of alternative closure strategy like maybe and we've i'm sure most of your audience knows like do you you know in are you in a area where you can add a ton of water quickly to reduce the exposure to the pit walls, to sulfide oxidation of the pit walls. I mean, maybe that's not the case in Nevada, but that's where we are seeing a lot of backfill pits. And so I know this is a pit lake conversation, but if you have a very shallow water body and you're able to backfill so that that shallow water body is not exposed at all, um, then hmm. maybe that is the long-term solution that makes sense and
0: so yeah you know, yeah it's not like uh, the waters right yeah I've, yeah I've come across that as well and it can be very beneficial to uh, submerge your sulfide rich uh, waste rock beneath the water table so that it never becomes
1: well, well, no, I, I love it. I, I agree. <laughs> sorry to get that aside, <laughs> which is uh, in Nevada, sorry, you cannot just assume that a a, a uh, water cover over your sulfide, sulfidic material is going to be a appropriate water strategy. So I can see that getting a lot of pushback. And so it is, it, it, we know that Water covers do limit oxidation. I'm not saying that there's no oxidation of sulfitic material, but but I think it is a good strategy. And, and I just want people that are thinking about that closure strategy to be aware that I can think of at least a few examples where it did not happen and it was proposed. And when ultimately closure came, the agency said, no.
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah, <laughs> that's my lack of uh, geochemical education uh, poking out there, but yeah, I do remember once you get the ARD engine going, it's really hard to stop it. So if it's turning acid, just submerging it is maybe not the greatest solution.
1: Well, and also um, if we're talking about, there's a lot of oxide resources in Nevada, let's say Arizona as well, where you have pretty low sulfide sulfur to begin with. And so, you know, placement of that backfill is pretty low risk. And so as we mine deeper into more sulfitic material, I think that you're going to see more of those kind of scenarios proposed. And it'll be interesting to see. We're going to need, I think there just needs to be evidence to support it. And Maybe that's laboratory test work. Maybe that's pilot testing. or Let me rephrase that: laboratory test work to pilot testing, and to demonstrate that you know the in, that waters of the state won't be degraded. So, yeah. So, but I think because there is so much oxide material in general in Nevada, backfilling a pit lake is is pretty. Excuse me, backfilling a pit is relatively um, straightforward to demonstrate um low potential influences on water quality
0: mm-hmm. patsy how come some pit lakes go wrong so either the chemistry is not good or or whatever
1: that is like a very open-ended question <laughs> <laughs> so let's think of, i mean obviously it's goes back to sulfides and so i think that um there are other processes that take place. So we can't just say it's all sulfide oxidation, but when you're, you know, when you're going after the resource, you leave sulfitic material in the pit walls often. Um, Sometimes it's, just because they didn't want to go after the low-grade ore that was in the wall rock. And I think a lot more miners are designing their pits to take that into consideration. If they can get some sulfitic material as part of their mine plan and have wall rock that is um, more oxide, then they'll incorporate that into their mine plan. But maybe in the past, that wasn't even considered far in the past, let's say well far relative and then also sometimes it's impossible because you might have a resource that's open on on you know open let's just say that and therefore you know you never be able to stop trying to get that sulfitic material out of the wall rock so there's that as well so just kind of, like you said, just general ARD, which is, you know, you get that reaction going and it's hard to stop. And then let's say you're in an area where you don't have a water balance that is positive and you won't be able to stop it. So, I mean, that. That really, and it is also related to the water balance. So if you have a tiny little bit of acidic wall rock or potentially acid generating wall rock and a lot of very alkaline um, wall rock or alkaline groundwater, it's going to offset that small input versus a large portion of your wall rock that could potentially overcome your inputs from other sources. And so that's where predictive pit lake modeling comes into play. And, and that's basically you can't get a mine permitted that has a pit lake. It, certainly not in the United States. You cannot get a mine permitted without a pit lake model. And I think that's generally across the, the globe the case.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's it's it's interesting and obviously a lot to learn about the pit lakes and uh, and the wall rock. So, when you were talking about the wall rock being um, having sulfides, is that mostly the wall rock that would be above the pit lake elevation, or not necessarily?
1: No, I think I mean this goes back to I turned my um, video off by the way, because just to make sure our our uh, connections good but the I don't want people to think that the limiting oxygen isn't a great way to reduce sulfide mineral oxidation it definitely is but the majority of the geochemistry the interesting geochemistry is definitely occurring above the, the surface but you have to take into consideration the fact that you have different types of pit lakes too, you know, and I'm, I'm no liminologist, but I mean, I, I certainly understand the, the basics of kind of, do you have a pit lake that has a, a chemocline where, you know, you never have, um, turnover into the bottom waters? Do you have yeah. a pit lake that's turning over all the time? And that's where the predictive pit lake modeling comes into play because you have to take that into consideration.
0: Yeah, yeah there's, there's quite a bit involved there, I, I guess, huh?
1: It, it is, and, and there's a lot of work that's being done. And I think with with modeling, you know, in in the past, maybe we would have, and I'll say past maybe more than in the beginning, maybe there was this desire to come up with one number and say, okay, this is what the water quality is going to be in, in 200 years or 500 years. And I'll, I'll tell you, I have a real, it's tough to, kind of say that we can predict that far out in the future to a single number and so i think those sensitivity analysis that are incorporated into expected in pit lake models now really mm. help people understand the potential variability and then miners they can plan around that that uncertainty you know
0: and yeah, so yeah. It
1: allows,
0: yeah yeah that that's good right are, are, are you saying uh 10 or 20 or 30 years ago there wouldn't have been a lot of work on reclamation and closure up front although we we always um had the notion that you've gotta start mining with reclamation in mind are you seeing it really and earnestly done uh more wholeheartedly up front these days?
1: Yeah, and I might as well go further back because I think there were some great um, environmental geochemists working with the mining industry 20 or 30 years ago. And and so I would probably go, I don't know, I mean, pre-Ron Schmeerman, pre-John Mahoney, and so their work, you know, and others in Canada, of course, is is instrumental in where we are today. So I think we're also learning so much, not only from just the work that we've done, but also from case studies and and that miners are realizing, I know uh, what is it? uh, environmental, social governance, ESG has become so important that they realize that it's not an afterthought, you know, environmental is a driver. And so, you know, they're they're putting it at the top of their list versus um, before it may have been lower down the list. And so I think that it's a combination right it's it made it it's made it further up into the into the rooms with the people that are making decisions financially and and they've seen enough um, it, negative impacts on their operations to realize how important it is. So but I mean what I do today is it's it's just a given you know they're not it's not, whether they need to do it or not, it's, it's how we need to do it, what, what we need to do to close this mine properly. And that's, I, gosh, I really think we need to go back and, and, and highlight our positives so that when people want to go back 100 years and say, well, this is what mining is, um, miners, mining consultants, you know, vendors, they need to say no that is what mining was and here are examples of of where it's gone well and there are a ton of them out there as far as I think I just it it's frustrating to me because of that kind of that I just feel like we don't market our positives enough and I'm not even sure I'm doing a great job of it today except for when I think about Nevada and how there's an expect you want to mine here now there's an expectation that you meet certain standards and that you appropriately bond and and that you do the predictive modeling at the top of you know the industry standards and that your characterization in advance of permitting and your characterization during operations you know keeps them from kind of deviating from that expectation so that's where i'm at
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i'd we've covered a lot of material today and one of the reasons i do this podcast is to make myself a little bit smarter so i thank you for making me a little bit smarter today and uh just wondering you know before i i, I know you've got a pair of snow skis uh right there close to you and you're Um, chomping at the bit to hit the slopes but before we part ways is there any key takeaways or pearls of wisdom that you could lay on us
1: I think I have already went off on my we need to market mining a little bit better and marketing is probably not the right word because I think that's what opposition uses like we've got this giant marketing team behind everybody who cares about um, Yeah mining and 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 mining um responsibly and so it's like your podcast uh mining minds i think northern Miner. i can't remember the name of that one but i think we need more of or maybe not more podcasts but we need to get the word out about these podcasts and we need people to be talking about the success stories and and kind of offsetting this um kind of dirty mining uh uh, message that is being put out there by mining opponents, uh, but besides that, I, I think that from a you know junior perspective, somebody who's getting into this field is I've been really lucky to be able to work with some great mentors over the years and people that have taken me under their wings and taught me what they knew, and and I think that we need more people out there trying to get people interested in environmental geochemistry in the mining field and taking them under their wings and remembering like I have to remember that that's what people did for me you know and that I need to do the same for (laughs) other students and, and make sure that they have a solid footing so that they can do a great job better than what I'm doing and carry on and, and, and really help the mining industry, you know, continue to do what they're doing and even better.
0: So, yeah, I, I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, Hey, if we just do one thing better today than we did yesterday, you know, and just keep that up, we're, we're going to make a huge difference in the world. Exactly. I'll stop talking. That's a Well, Patsy, like I said, I know you've got a pair of skis uh, close by and you're chopping at the bit to hit the slope. So I won't keep you any longer, but I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing some wisdom with us and and, uh, making things like this a, a little bit easier for us to understand.
1: Thanks, Brian. I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we'll we'll have you back on to talk about your submitted pace backfill. Perfect, I'm looking forward to it. All right, thanks again. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rocking.